0: Welcome to episode 16 of the Media Sport podcast series, the first of the new year. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins, and it's great to have your company again. This episode is significant for two reasons. First, it introduces another new voice in media sport, offering an opportunity to hear about important research produced by a doctoral student or early career researcher. Secondly, this is the first time I'm speaking to an interviewee via Skype in South America, and Brazil more specifically. Following on from episodes that discuss Scotland, Germany, Denmark and China, this interview continues my efforts to present a range of differing national and cultural perspectives on sport and media to listeners. Joining me via Skype from Recife in the northeast of Brazil is Ana Vimeira. Ana is a recent PhD graduate who holds a bachelor's degree in journalism as well as a master's degree in social communication from the Federal University of Minas Gerais. Her master's thesis investigated historical transformations in public discourses about people with a disability over the last 50 years in Brazil. She has also worked as a journalist and published papers in Portuguese about methodological innovations, public culture and critical theory. I discovered Anna after being approached to examine her English language PhD thesis last year and it proved to be a rewarding experience. Completed under the supervision of Jean Burgess and Axel Bruns in the Faculty of Creative Industries at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, the thesis is titled Football Supporter Cultures in Modern Day Brazil, Hypercommodification, Network Collectivisms and Digital Productivity. Using a combination of critical political economy, discursive analysis, digital research methods and in-depth interviews with football fans, the thesis presents what Anna terms a conjunctural analysis. It first documents the ongoing economic restructure of the Brazilian professional football industry, as indicated by the 2014 World Cup and events in the top division of men's Brazilian club football. It then examines the widespread adoption of new technologies by football fans and their many and varied media practices. Anna shows that travelling alongside growing levels of commodification of football and football clubs is an increase in amateur-produced media projects by fans, encompassing blogs, podcasts, YouTube channels, and social networking sites such as Orkut and Twitter. I invited Anna to speak with me because there is much to learn by reading and hearing about her thesis, which, in my mind, offers a convincing demonstration of the autonomy or relative autonomy of culturally rich and nationally based media practices, and the continuing relevance of nationally rooted sporting cultures in a global age. Anna, thanks for taking the time to speak to the Media Sport podcast series.
1: Oh, thank you, Brett, for inviting me. It's it's my pleasure.
0: Let's begin by discussing how you came to write a thesis about this particular topic. Now, I understand you're a lifelong fan of Atletico-MG. How has your experience of supporting your team changed over time, and how does it relate to the the thesis you ended up writing? Oh,
1: yes, I am a lifelong fan of Atletico. Um, Atletico is kind of part of my life and part of my family life. And uh, it relates to many of my friendships, um, to my, yeah, my relation with my father, with my brother. I think that uh, the experience that I had when I was a kid, for example, it's quite different right now. Um, the capacity of the stadium has, I think it's, it, it's, it's half of the capacity uh, than it had um, 15 years ago. You have the difference um, in the outside, outside the stadium as well. You have, you know, um, more expensive uh, beverages. You have different types of foods being sold. You have a different type of behavior um, of the the, the supporters on the outside. And I I think the fact that um, I have experienced that um, as a fan was what kind of um, made me um, want to analyze what really was going on uh, in Brazil
0: you seem to be describing a, a process that I think we can observe in a number of other countries I know you, you speak about the UK uh, in your thesis but around the, the gentrification and the increasing expense um, associated with football and I in the case of Brazil this is of course, yeah dovetails with the 2014 World Cup. You know, what are the sort of connections between that event and the, sort, the events you describe uh, in your study?
1: Uh, the World Cup, it's uh, profoundly related uh, with the, the, the intensification of commodification process uh, uh, in the, the football sector in Brazil. Especially because of the stages, so it's with the World Cup uh, that we have the adoption of the all-seater uh, model uh, in most of the stages in Brazil, or not in most of the stages, but in most of the stages of the top clubs. So for the World Cup we had 12 stages that were built or renovated uh, for the event. they were all uh, renovated and built uh, following the the FIFA standards. And one of these standards um, was the the adoption of seats in all sectors uh, of the stadium. So after the World Cup, what happened is that, not after the World Cup, but with the the, the opening of the the, the arenas uh, that would host the matches for the event, What happened is that uh, the tickets in Brazil, they got really expensive. Um, An economist here in Brazil, he analyzed, I think in 2013, um, and he he analyzed the price of the tickets in Brazil and compared with the price of the tickets, the football tickets, um, in other places in the world to the conclusion that Brazil has the most expensive football tickets in the world if you um, take the average price of the ticket and the average wage uh, of the population. So uh, it's, I mean, when you have uh, such, you know, uh, an increase in the price uh, of the tickets, you have many implications in terms of the type of public that you you're gonna get uh, at the stadium and the off model as well has uh, other implications in my thesis I talk for instance about the implications for the movements of the, 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 the crowd the supporter crowds inside the stadium so you have you know, a different atmosphere where people uh, don't move as they used to move um, in the past So you have a more controlled environment and that's the reason why I I argued in in the thesis that the World Cup in Brazil had a similar effect as the Taylor Report um, in England. So with the Taylor Report, um, we had the adoption of the all-seater model um, in England and also the creation of the Premier League um, following uh, the report. And in Brazil we have this this similar process with the World Cup, we have the all-seater model and we have the intensification of the commodification of the Brazilian leagues. So you have a really significant increase in the the, the revenues, um, diverse types of revenues, media revenues, sponsorship revenues of the, the, the Brazilian clubs. So it's it's quite uh, strongly uh, related uh, to the World Cup and to this this, this wider uh, context of transformations. And now what happens is that um, actually we already had, you know, a significant level of commodification in the 90s, but Brazil, um, the population didn't quite, I think they couldn't, uh, in some sense, uh, support, you know, the, 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 the higher level of commercialization of the league, because you had, in Brazil, in, in the 90s, we had many social problems and a really high level of inequality and poverty. And now the thing is that um, the policies that were actually adopted by a leftist um, government, and they up kind of supporting uh, the the hyper commodification uh, of the Brazilian league. It's a kind of a paradoxical uh, scenario, but it's it's what it's kind of in, in the base and making possible uh, that uh, the Brazilian league um, has this this economic boom.
0: It's sort of interesting you, you mentioned the Taylor report and indeed the, the bipartisan embrace of, uh, I suppose, a more free market economic model around football, which, of course, um, is objected to by fans and others who are excluded because of the ticket prices and things that you mentioned. But mm-hmm. it also points towards important role that's often ignored um, of government in the way sport is organised and conducted. Now... There's been a number of legislative acts passed by the National Congress of Brazil over the years that have created the conditions for the hyper-commodification that you describe. Um, Could you give us an example of one of those acts, perhaps um, the Pelé Act or or another one that you might choose to speak about?
1: Yeah, yeah. um, You know, uh, all this... this, um Social contest. Um, Also, we had uh, this legal contest in some way that is uh, behind, you know, uh, all the the changes that we have seen uh, in Brazil. And the Pala Act is one of these uh, regulations that kind of um, boosted this more market-oriented model of organization of the sector. We had, you know. Other regulations uh, since uh, late in the eighties. So uh, Brazil uh, experienced this redemocratization process in late eighties, and since then uh, we have seen yeah, many regulations that kind of are trying uh, to uh, make. Football closer to the market and a little bit uh, far away from the state, because before um, during the the military regime, uh, football in Brazil was founded uh, by the state, and after the democratization, we have you know uh, many efforts uh, to make football um, uh, something a sector that is more connected to the the, the private. Um, sector than with the the, the state and the Pellet, um was a clear attempt uh, to make um, football uh, a more market oriented sector in Brazil and they, they the, the, the groups uh, the people that were involved uh, in the project, they tried uh, to make a le- legislation that would change some points uh, in Brazil. Like for instance, um, they tried to, to make uh, an obligation that uh, the football clubs uh, that were at the time, and they are still today um, not-for-profit uh, civil associations, and they wanted to make an obligation that the clubs would uh, become commercial enterprise. And the clubs didn't want to, to change it, because um, being a non-for-profit organization means that they have some uh, tax benefits. And this was one of the things that uh, the PELECT um, was supposed to, to make, but at, at the end, um, with all the, you know, um, power uh, struggles between uh, different groups it ended up uh, not being in the final uh, act it was in, in the bill but it didn't uh, it wasn't included uh, in the act but one of the things that the Pellet Act changed um, was the the labor relations uh, between players and the clubs uh, and particularly uh, the act. Abolished what we call in in Portuguese and in Brazil uh, passe, which can be translated as "pass," Uh, and the pass was a contractual contractual, uh, term Mm -hmm. that actually tied the player; the the player only could uh, transfer to another club if the club that had its pass uh, kind of authorised him to transfer to the other club. So it was something uh, very similar to, uh, to the retain system that England had uh, back in the 60s, I think it was uh, extinguished in the 60s, and uh, the Pellet changed it, so it, it added um, a type of, um, of flexible relations between uh, the players and the clubs, and it changed uh, the pass by a system of uh, compensatory fees. And with this, this more flexible uh, relations, actually the clubs had to look for new types of uh, revenues uh, so they could make up for the the, the, the possible losses uh, with the end of the pass. Because pass was a really uh, important element uh, for the club's uh, finance and with the Pelaexo they had to look for a new source of revenues and it's kind of interesting because uh, around the same time we have uh, the the, uh, beginning of the pay-per-view service in Brazil, the TV pay-per-view uh, and yeah, you kind of have you know a transition uh, from a model um, where the clubs depended on match attendance and on the past to a, a new new uh, environment where the clubs start to depend more on media revenues than in the past. So this was in in 1998, the Pella Act, and after that we had a couple of other uh, regulations that are step-by-step kind of establishing that the relation between the clubs and the supporters uh, is a type of of consumer relation and uh, this kind of has implications for how uh, the supporters relate to the clubs and how they are treated and uh, yeah, other things um, uh, are kind of influenced by these changes.
0: You mentioned um, pay television, and uh, how is that connected to us, the sorts of changes in television and media coverage of the game in recent decades? I'm, I'm assuming we're talking about a, a increasing cost, um, the supporters to follow their teams, as well as increasing power of media corporations such, uh, such as Globo, am I correct?
1: Yeah, we're having this, you know, an interesting thing in the recent years, I think it's since uh, 2010 or 2009. Uh, that, with all these changes that I mentioned earlier, uh, we have had this this significant increase uh, in the numbers of people that actually uh, subscribe to pay t- to to pay TV so we had for a very long time you know uh, there was no such significant significant change uh, in terms of subscribers uh, to pay TV, and it's with the, the, the increase of the purchasing power of the population and uh, the consumer culture that we started to see uh, this this increase. And one of the things that has also increased is the 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 the, the, the football pay per view um, scheme, which is something that you 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 subscribe in a separated way from the pay tv and it has yeah only um uh, it's increasing uh year by year i don't know right now because brazil it's kind of the scenario is changing again we are, we are having a uh, an economical and political crisis right now so probably uh it may change uh, in 2000 the data from 2015 and 2016 uh, may have uh, a change in this in this instead increases, but yeah. And what happens is that uh, with this this increase in the numbers of subscribers uh, to the the the, the football uh, pay per view uh, package, uh, you have also um, a huge and a significant increase in the media revenues uh, of the clubs. So you have like uh, different types of 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 source of revenues of the clubs they have had uh increase in the last uh 5 10 years but the media revenues uh, it's one of the the, the the it's probably the one that uh, increased the most and this is it's it, it's kind of um, significant because it increases the power of reto global which is the, the, the largest media network in Brazil. Rede Globo has been TV broadcast rights holder uh, for the Brazilian championship uh, for the last uh, more than 30 years, since the 80s. Since actually uh, football matches started to be live televised uh, in Brazil, Brazil hold, uh, Rede Globo holds the, 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 the rights to broadcast it. So, uh, with the increased dependence of the clubs on the media revenues, you have an increased dependence of the clubs on Global. And uh, it's, it's a very um, problematic uh, thing. And Hedge uh, Global is right now actually renegotiating uh, the contracts with the, the clubs. And people uh, have been talking about um, a scenario in Brazil that resembles the, the, the Spanish uh, environment, with the big clubs kind of uh, receiving um, much more uh, money than the small clubs. And right now, uh, this is it's, it's a huge problem. You have you know some top clubs that are kind of um, distancing themselves from the other clubs uh, in terms of investments, in terms of hiring players. And I don't know what's going to happen in the the future, but yeah, these are the things that are happening right now, and they're probably going to influence how uh, the organization of the league, um, it's going to be in five years, in 10 years. Significant difference in Brazil is that uh, in the past um, championships, you have different clubs uh, winning the, 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 the championship. And that's been going on for the last like, 10, 20 years. We haven't uh, had this concentration you know, in a few clubs like in Spain. But with this uh, increase of the, the distance between the big clubs and the small clubs, uh, the, the, the contest in Brazil may, may change.
0: Polarisation is a really interesting issue. It also speaks to the ongoing shift and ex- intensifying shift away from community organised and focused formations in football towards that commodified commercial focus that you described. But standing alongside, or travelling alongside that, are changes in the way fans express themselves and get to comment or even protest about these sorts of changes. And I really enjoyed the history you provided of online and internet-based football community activities, which travels from 1990s bulletin board systems and email lists through to Orkut and Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and podcasts. How have these technologies related to the the transformations you've just been talking about?
1: Especially I think new technologies, uh, they have played a central role in how the supporters are kind of uh, trying, you know, to to keep organizing their cultures uh, in their way and not, you know, just uh, kind of treating their clubs as just a brand. So they have been using uh, new technologies, uh, I wouldn't say to fight against um, this contest, but to actually um, make sense and uh, to, to make football something uh, that they want football to be. And yeah, in my thesis I, I, I mentioned and I analyzed a couple of um, practices a couple of um, fan uh, protests, and all of them in some way are related um, to this new use that uh, football supporters have uh, done of new technologies. And uh, about the, the, the online communities, I think it, it, it's 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 interesting how we can kind of you know see um, that these communities. Um, and uh, these practices and activities that fans have um, engaged online and offline how they they also changed with the, the changes of technology itself so you have like back in the 90s you have these um, small groups that were formed you know via bbs's and email lists and they were really uh, much more you know, in a smaller scale than than what we have, for example, with Orkut, um in the 2000s in Brazil, and now with Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. So back in, in the 90s, um, I analyzed this this group um, of supporters of Atlético, and they had this group that was called Netigalu. Netigalu was created. Um, via DBS and later on um, they organized themselves via uh, an email list and later in the 90s uh, they actually became uh, an organized group of supporters so they became kind of uh, an institution and uh, the thing is that when they were you know doing all the ads uh, I'm talking about like 250 fans that were mostly students, and you had, you know, uh, quite, quite uh, cohesive um, profile or a similar type of, of similar types of uh, supporters and similar types of, you know, people in, in this group. And what you see with Orkut and now with Twitter and Facebook is just. It's the, the the mainstream of this this type of, of engagement, the mainstream of uh, this type of online engagement with uh, the culture of your your club. So with Orkut, uh we had really uh, big communities already. Um, back in early in the 2000s, and when Orkut uh, was extinct, um, like most communities were really not being used um, on Orkut at the time, but the football communities, the club, club-based uh, communities, uh, were still very much um, active, and what we have now is the large users of Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, um, by uh, the supporters to organize uh, collective performance, to produce media, to to make you know friendships with other uh, other fans, and it's very interesting when you I talked to to I interviewed some of these fans. that are very um, very influential um, in these communities. And it's very interesting how they kind of know each other they kind of know who you know is doing what Uh, you have loads of people doing blogs and podcasts and uh, videos and uh, photographs and a bunch of um, types of media content and of course i mean not all projects have um the same audience you have you know specific uh, projects that are more popular than others but the interesting things is that um they are doing something that is it, it's quite different from um from you may expect seeing all the the hyper commodification of the sport so they are actually you know trying to to to, to make football uh, something meaningful for them, and uh, they are writing about that, they are writing in a passionate way, they are doing things that are different from what um, traditional media uh, is doing, so they are talking about these stories um, that, you know, only the supporters uh, that are part of that culture can kind of understand and can kind of relate, and uh, it, it's quite interesting to see how these um, these projects and these communities uh, they are kind of going side by side with this this, this intensification of the this market uh, oriented model because they are quite you know they are not the opposite but the fans they seem to be quite aware of what's going on and they are trying um, in some ways to keep some of the traditions, to keep some of the the, the things that they believe uh, they shouldn't, you know, just disappear because football is becoming a different thing.
0: Just listening to what you were describing then it occurs to me that uh, gender um, must play a, a role within the expression of these fan cultures. I mean... What what of the role of women in these supporter cultures versus, I suppose, the uh, the more dominant voices of many men?
1: Oh yeah, it's it's yeah, it is still very much male dominated uh, even today. Um, um, I talked uh, during my research. I talked to two uh, women that were doing um, producing media content related to their clubs. And they were quite. Um, they they, you know, talked about that how how they still uh, feel that um, their opinions are not quite you know respected or heard as the you know uh, male supporters' opinions, and how it is important for them to have this opportunity of being um, of producing things and saying things and being able to, to to share with other people. Things that in the past they couldn't do and now they are kind of producing uh, in, my, in my thesis I, I, I explored it how they actually produce some stuff that it, it, it's quite different from what um, the male supporters um, are doing. And they have this more uh, one of the the, the 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 supporters that I interviewed, she had this very literary style of writing about football, and yeah, things that they are trying, you know, to 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 make in a different way uh, than their fellow uh, male supporters. So it is still quite uh, a male-dominated uh, environment. Uh, it's it, it it's. It's paradoxical, because I think with all these, these changes, actually, like, this stadium is becoming a more friendly space for women, and uh, you have, you can see when you go to this stage that uh, there are more women and more families at this stage. And, uh, yeah, and at the same time, they are kind of trying um, to make things in a different way and also producing media and... Occupying in a certain way uh, important uh, roles in the in the supporters' cultures.
0: I was uh, fascinated by something called Inferno Alvenegro. Now I have no idea whether I've pronounced that correctly, but what is it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> what is it, and what's it actually like to witness?
1: Yeah, Inferno Alvenegro is one of the the, the, the things that I analysed that is regularly um, organized by fans of Atletico and uh, was um, in the at first the first time that it happened it was um, organized online uh, specifically um, on the Orkut community that the, the biggest one that was dedicated uh, to, to Atletico when Orkut was still uh, on so if ango is it's, it's it's a collective practice, it's a performance um, that the, the, the supporters um, do uh, in the vicinity of the stadium. So every time that the, the, the club is playing, the, the, the players and the staff members, they come to the stadium um, with this bus, which is like a style, with a, a personalized you know, bus uh, of the club. And in the past, uh, the supporters they knew that um, the, the, the players they were arriving and they used to you know, sing and make kind of a celebration when the bus was arriving uh, at the stadium. And in 2012, um, Atlético was doing very well in the Brazilian Championship and they decided to make this thing, which is they gather in these places that they know that the, that the bus is going to pass by and they take uh, flares uh, this, this low hazard flares it's, it's, it's a type of, of flare that kind of uh, only, uh, only produce smoke and a very uh, light glow and they gather in these places where the, the bus is coming and when the bus uh, arrives they kind of um, light the flares uh, in an orchestrated way, and they also sing, and uh, yeah, they they, they they make a big celebration that they believe uh, helps uh, the, the players to to you know kind of getting to the the the, the, the battle and prepare for the battle, and uh, it's been going on for. Main, like since 2012 it's a regular performance they like to make this, uh, especially um, in special occasions in big matches and it's like aesthetically it's it's very beautiful you have a really you know huge amount of, of, of supporters um, and the bus comes and uh, you have all the flares um, uh, lighted and um, it's, it's something that the, the, the supporters themselves, when they uh, organized it for the first time, they actually uh, talked about how uh, inside the stadium uh, they have been constrained and they have kind of uh, controlled all the time and they can't do everything that they used to do and uh, how the, you know this the space uh, kind of makes them behave in a particular way. And they wanted to do something uh, different and they couldn't do inside the stadium so they decided to take you know um, this to the vicinity of the stage to the outside and this was one of the reasons why they organized that so they could do something uh, in a less controlled space and uh, well experience it, it it's very interesting because it, it's it's like in Brazil, uh, we have this, this. I think it's it's like in the most uh, place in the world. We go to the to the stadium uh, early on, uh, so really before the match, one hour, two hours before the match, and uh, we wait for the match outside the stadium. So you have you know a drink and you can eat something and you chat with your friends about the match. And actually, like when did the, the bus comes? it's like the first really exciting thing that happens and especially in a a big match it's a really it's a big celebration and uh, i think the most interesting thing is that they feel that this is this is something that they are doing and this is something that remembers them um, of how They can plan and do things that are not necessarily controlled by the club or controlled uh, by the people running the game. So it's something that they are doing, they are organizing. And uh, yeah, the the, the interesting thing is that um, all the mobilization, all the details and organization um, of the performance uh, generally happens online in the Facebook groups, uh, on Twitter, and uh, in other places, in other sites that they use for football conversations.
0: For anyone interested in what Anna's been so um, effectively describing, I'd I'd encourage you to do an an image search on your your web browser of choice for Inferno Alvinagro, A-L-V-I-N-E-G-R-O. Um, shifting focus, uh, given the sort of economic transformations and changes and emerging forms of inequality you've been describing in and around football, how does this connect for how, to how preparations for the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Olympic Games are proceeding at present? What, what's going on in terms of the sort of political and, and social discussions?
1: But what's have been discussing the preparations Uh, not as much as the World Cup I mean the the Olympic Games they are not you know as big as the World Cup in Brazil so um, we have seen discussions and debates about the preparations but it's just that before the World Cup everything was about the World Cup and now it's, it's, it's in a smaller scale but it's, it's going on, uh, there are some problems, some delays, um, I've seen the other day that it seems that um, Rio is not as delayed as Athens was um, in the preparations for the, the 2004 Olympic Games, but it's far away from, from, from London, so it's like you no, know, there are some delays but some stuff um it's it's getting ready and a lot of thing that i saw the other day about this it's um this um reporter uh it's andrew jennings i think um this investigative reporter he has been uh, investigating fifa he's an english reporter and uh, he was saying the other day that the, the good thing of oh, Brazil was lucky that uh, we are actually in an economic crisis right now, and and the government is not able to actually, you know, kind of make concessions to the Olympic Committee as it did uh, for for FIFA. So um, the thing is that Brazil is it's not spending. I think. Um, with the the olympic games and it would if the if the economy was going so well as it was before the world cup so it's it's kind of yeah it's 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 going on and uh, maybe we are really lucky that we are in an economic crisis and things are a little bit you know less controversial because um there is there is still a lot of public funding uh, going for the, the event, but less than I think it was expected um, before.
0: Where can people find out more about your research and, and what do you, what what's the next step? What are you going to do?
1: Oh yeah, well, no, after I finished, I, I, I took a really long break for <laughs> a couple of months. <laughs> it was really, really good. <laughs> just rest and <laughs> not talk so much about football and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm actually coming back to work now and I'm probably going to I'm, I'm already applying for jobs and um, transforming uh, my thesis in articles and doing this kind of stuff that I think everybody does after we finish um, a big research project or during uh, the time you are doing the research and also i'm planning to to, 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 to actually uh, make a book proposal to transform the thesis into a book i think uh, there are a lot of interest uh, from people from other places um, into football into brazilian football and there are not so many songs uh, and you know reference uh, in English that people can can actually get to know what's going on in Brazil. So yeah, my plan is to to transform the, the thesis into a book and yeah just keep just keep researching football in Brazil. Everything is changing again so I have a bunch of uh, you know empirical research to to keep doing and Yeah, people can find more about my research Uh, i have a website it's um, annavimiero.com a-n-a-v-i-m-i-e-i-r-o.com and also you can find uh, my work on the the digital repository of QUT the university that i did my phd and uh, also in academia and, yeah,
0: that's it. Look, I, I wish you all the best uh, with, with those next steps um, and, and every success. And I, I really look forward to hearing more about your research and seeing your name on publications and conferences in the coming years. Thank you, Anna.
1: Thank you, Brett. <laughs> See you.